0: Amen. And good morning. morning. It's great to see you today. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Mill. And hey, before we get into our message today, I have two quick things for you. One, just on a personal note, my oldest daughter graduated from high school yesterday. So you, you know what this means. It means that I have successfully raised a human. So yeah, I feel like my credibility just keeps going up. And she seems at this point to be a really good human, so we'll find out how successful over the next few decades, but feeling pretty good about that. Um, and some of you have had that experience. It's, it's a really fun one. Um, sad, fun, nostalgic, all the feels. At any rate, uh, that's the first thing. The second is that most of you know that our, our beloved Pastor Carl Palmer passed away uh, last Friday, not this past Friday, but a Friday ago, uh, peacefully in his home. Uh, we have a memorial service planned to celebrate his life and faith uh, next, this coming Saturday, June 18th at 1 p.m. right here in the Worship Center. So we'd love to have you. Carl was the teaching pastor here for 25 years. We're going to celebrate his life, his faith, and, and lift up his Lord together. It is going to be a time of great joy. So if you can join us, that would be wonderful. And this morning we're also full of joy because we are opening God's word together and we're continuing in the series that we've been in for a number of weeks called Resurrection Implications. And the goal of this series is, again, to consider how the death and resurrection of Jesus directly impacts, changes, and transforms our daily lives as followers of Jesus, how it's not just an event, but it's an event that changes us and shapes the way we, we think and feel and act and live in this world. And today's message is really part two of a message that I preached a couple weeks ago from Colossians chapter 3. Um, Colossians 3 2. If you remember this, it was our memory verse from three weeks back. Set your minds on things above not on earthly things. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And Paul's focus in this verse and in this entire section of Scripture scripture really is how the Christian life is not just outward transformation. Jesus doesn't come and say, Now you all need to start to behave better. Church is not a seminar on behavior modification. Instead, instead, what the gospel says, what the death and resurrection of Jesus mean for you and me is that we will be changed from the inside out. That our outward transformation is really just the result of a deeper and more significant transformation that has happened on the inside for you and me in Christ. This is a moment where we consider intentionally surrendering and purposefully submitting our inner lives to the lordship of Jesus. And in this section of scripture, Colossians chapter 3, Paul has two main focuses in his teaching. The first one we covered a few weeks back. He's talking about this changed life. And he says part one of the changed life is that you need to put to death, remember that phrase, put to death the sinful thoughts and feelings that reside deep down in your mind and heart. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This was Paul's kind of personal example of how the roots of sin run deep inside of you and me. And he says we have to pull those up. And then in verse 8 he says, You must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. This is sort of a, a relational, communal example of how even in a community, even in the church, there are, sin runs deep inside of us together and then comes out in destructive and dividing ways. But again, his first point, the resurrection life begins by pulling up the roots of sin in your life. And then today we'll look at his second point. He'll now shift. And he's going to talk about clothing ourselves in Christ-like things. So he's saying, pull up the sin in your life and now clothe yourselves in Christ-like things. You see, the resurrection life is not just don't do bad stuff. Sometimes we think about Christianity in this way is not the message not just don't do bad things. It's no so godly character into and all throughout your life. Here's our memory verse today. We're going to focus right here. Colossians 3 verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What a great verse to plant into your brain. Say it with me. Let's read it together. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul starts this verse with with three terms. Three terms, he says, describe you and me as followers of Jesus. The first one is God's chosen people. He says, you are God's chosen people. Here's the significance of that. This was the phrase used all throughout the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel. And what Paul is saying is, he's saying here, All the love, all the grace, all the benefits that were at one time afforded to the nation of Israel are now available to everyone, to Greeks, to Gentiles, to you and me in Christ. You are God's chosen people in Christ. Next he says, you are holy. This is a word that means sacred or separate, specifically separate from Sin. God is described as holy, and yet here he says, you are holy. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has made you holy in Christ. God looks at you and sees you as holy, set apart from sin. All your sin has just been separated out. Do you see? That's how God sees you now. And then finally he says, dearly loved. It's one word in Greek. It's agapeo. It's like agape love. Describing you, it means to be well-pleased with something. Or my favorite definition, to be fond of someone. Because Paul is saying, do you know, remember this, that because of the gospel, you are part of God's chosen people. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he sees you as holy. The God of the universe is fond of you. He's fond of you. You're not just forgiven. You're not just tolerated. The Lord of heaven and earth is fond of you. And what Paul is saying here initially is, to be who God wants you to be, you have to know who God says you are. To be who God wants you to be, you have to know who God says you are. To live the Christian life, you have to know who you are in Christ that you're chosen, that you're holy, that you're beloved. I remember as a youth youth pastor, we would... Take huge summer trips. Take all of our kids from our high school youth group. We'd have like 80 to 100 kids. We'd load them on buses. We'd like pack vans, these 15 passenger vans that as it turns out were really dangerous. Now we know that, but we had kids all in them. We'd drive across the country to some destination where we'd do Habitat for Humanity. Sometimes we'd go up to Northern North Dakota to a native uh, reservation and serve the people there. But anytime you take 80 to 100 high school kids anywhere, there's always trouble. Right? And most of that trouble has to do with the fact that you've got boys and girls together in close proximity. And I remember this one time in particular, one of the leaders in our group, this young man named Brian, he got into some trouble with a cute young lady named Marin. And I remember pulling him aside. And in this particular moment, I didn't say, You scoundrel, Brian. You're the worst kid, terrible decision. I can't believe you did this. You're such a horrible young guy. No, I I said, Brian, this is not who you are. This is not who you are. You're, You're a leader. You're a follower of Jesus. You love the Lord. You're an example. All the younger guys, they look up to you. You are the guy who kind of sets the pace and makes the good decision. That's who you are. So I didn't scold Brian by telling him, You know he was wrong. I reminded him of who he is, and that's what Paul is doing for us here. He's saying, "Church, remember who you are." I say this to my kids when I drop them off at school in the morning. My youngest daughter, like I'll drop her off at middle school. It's like, "Good luck in there." That's that's a tough place to be. Like you're just trying to survive. And as she leaves the car, I'll say, "Remember who you are. Remember who you are. That you are daughter of the King." That you're part of Team Teshara, and we follow the Lord Jesus, right? Remember who you are. And then, and here's what Paul does now. Now he's gonna give us a picture of what it looks like when we truly embrace and live into who we are in Christ. He says, this is what you'll wear when you know who you are. One, compassion. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion. This is a tender heart for people who are experiencing hardship or suffering. Compassion is the opposite of a judgmental or condemning spirit. It's a posture that says, I have been shown so much mercy in my life from the Lord that I long to offer that same mercy to others. The Jewish people, they, they thought compassion came from the guts, from your bowels. And the reason they believed this is because when you saw someone in need, someone hurting, someone who had who'd been wronged or who was experiencing injustice, you would just get that ache in your gut. And they thought that was a really good ache and that was from God. That's compassion. Compassion is the reason that we do the Jesus table, right? Because we want to offer mercy to people because we have been given so much mercy. We want to feel for them deep down in our Guts. Next on the list, kindness. Paul says, clothe yourselves with exhibit and be known for your kindness. Listen to this biblical definition I found of kindness. Kindness signifies not merely goodness as a quality. Rather, it is goodness in action. Goodness expressing itself in deeds. It's the good Samaritan who doesn't just walk past the person who's injured on the side of the road and feel bad for them. It doesn't just say, oh, that's that's really too bad. They stop, they help, they do something. Kindness moves us to action. Listen to where kindness comes from. This is from Titus chapter three. Titus is a little teeny book in the very back of the New Testament. It's Paul writing to a young man. Christian leader. Listen to what he says. Listen to these words. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. When the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. You see, Paul's talking here about the kindness of God, that God doesn't just stand back and feel bad for us and our broken, fallen, sinful state, but that his, his goodness is moved to action, that he is kind, and how God's kindness overwhelms us and transforms us and changes us and shapes us from the inside out. That's kindness. Then there's humility. Next on the list, humility. It's important to say here that there is no word in classical Greek for humility. When Paul, when Jesus shows up on the scene, when Paul is writing this, there's not even a word to describe humility. It wasn't even part of their language because the Greeks did not believe in humility. Humility. They did not value humility. So, Jesus, when he comes along and he starts modeling humility and he starts talking about humility and he starts, he starts lifting it up as, as a virtue, the people in that culture are thinking, What? Be humble? That doesn't sound too great. That, that's not going to get you very far in this world. You see, humility was such a countercultural thing. Because in our world today, it doesn't get you very far. It didn't get you very far back in Jesus' day either. When Paul's writing these words, pride, assertiveness, aggression, even arrogance is what would move you ahead in this world. And yet, Christians were called to be clothed in humility. And let's be clear here humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not nobody likes me, everybody hates me, let's go eat some worms. It's not, humility is not being self-critical or self-loathing. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See, everyone knows that Tigger doesn't have humility, right? I mean, Tigger comes bounding onto the scene and you don't think this guy's humble. No, why? He's singing songs about himself, you know? Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made of rubber. Their bottoms are made of springs. They're bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. No one's like, what a humble guy, that Tigger. All right, like, no, he's not humble. We all know Tigger's not humble. However, Eeyore, he shows up on the scene, and you might be tempted to think that is humble, right? I lost my tail can't find my tail again. Is it a nice day? Who knows? Life's a bummer. I'm so sad and depressed, and it's my birthday, but it's not a very nice day, right? I mean, like, and we think, oh, what a humble guy. No, friends, not humble. You see, some of the most negative people are the most arrogant people. Humility is not downplaying your strengths and weaknesses and accomplishments. It's not saying, I'm a nobody, Humility often actually goes hand-to-hand with confidence. They actually fit together very nicely. You see, humility is being so confident in who you are and so confident in who God says that you are and who he made you to be that you have no need to impress or gain the approval of others. You don't need to talk about yourself because you are so confident in who you are. Humility and confidence give you the ability to put the focus on other people. Humility is, I believe, one of the great and central foundational characteristics of the Christian life. More and more, I'm coming to believe that it's at the very core of what it means to follow Jesus. And for this reason, I am planning to devote a number of messages to this topic in the future. Largely... Perhaps because I realize that I need to grow in this area. And one of the ways I do that is by preaching on it. So you think these sermons are for you, but they're really just me trying to like walk with Jesus and then you get to be a part of it. Um, But we are going to talk more about humility. Next on the list, gentleness. Gentleness is a word about how you act when you have the authority When you have the power, when you have the upper hand, when you are in the right and the other person is in the wrong. And gentleness does not say that you back down and sacrifice the truth, but it says you're soft in your approach. That you don't leverage every single advantage. That you don't push people too hard or too fast. You see, gentleness is challenging. Are you ready to be challenged? I found this definition of gentleness in a Bible dictionary. Listen to these words. You know know how the scriptures say that sometimes they will kind of cut into us, like down into our bones, into our joints, down into our marrow. Like the scripture comes in and does surgery and you're like, I know that's good for me, but it really hurts. This is one of those moments. Gentleness is a willingness to suffer injury rather than inflict it. Gentleness says, if somebody's going to get hurt in this deal, let it be me. If somebody's going to get offended here, let it be me. If somebody has to suffer here, let it be me. If somebody has to lose, let it be me. I don't like to lose. Anyone here like to lose? I tell you, I really don't like to lose. Like, I really don't like it. I mean, I used to coach my kids' teams when they were little. You know, like, there's all these little kids and they're trying to play t-ball or soccer or whatever and they huddle up at the beginning of the game and the coach is supposed to say something positive and I'd say, all right, kids, you know, here's the deal, have fun, because if you have fun, you won. And I have fun when I win, so let's win, right? Like, on three, winners. Like, right, And I mean, like, that's... Maybe you can relate to that, some of you. Some of you are like, Pastor Dave, we really, you know, we'll pray for you. But but gentleness is hard because it comes in direct sort of opposition to our pride and our selfish, sinful nature. And Paul says, be clothed with gentleness. Oh, yeah. Finally, the last word on his list is the word patience. Patience is the quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation, In other words, when someone is taunting you or coming at you, in that moment, you are able to stay self-controlled. That's patience. Patience does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. Patience is the quality that does not surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial Patience is actually one of those qualities that sounds really good when you talk about it. I mean, it it doesn't, it? I mean, it's like, we all want to be patient. Everyone here is like, oh yeah, I really want to be more patient. I'd like, patience sounds great. I'd like to be patient. We like it until we really need it. And in those moments when you really need patience, it's the last thing you want. I mean, I love to be patient. I love to be patient when everything's going well. I fully embrace patience until I'm frustrated, in a hurry, or feeling stressed, and then I don't want patience. This word for patience is the word macro It specifically means patience for people. It's patience for people who drive all the way to the front and then want to cut in at the last minute. You know those people? It's patience for those people. It's patience for people who have 30 items in the 15 items or less checkout line, and then after they check out, they want to chat it up with the clerk for a little bit while you stand there and wait. Patience. Patience for people who bug you. This is what this is about. Macroformia. People who annoy you and disagree with you. People who have different ideological ideas than you. People who have different political ideas than you. People who have different theological ideas than you. You see, patience says, I wait, I listen. I don't easily get irritated or annoyed. Now, when we step back and we look at this list, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. If you're like me, you're thinking, I got a long way to go. I mean, I came to church today feeling pretty good about myself, like, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm doing it, I'm walking with the Lord, I feel pretty mature in the Lord, and then you read that list and you go, got it some work, I'm pretty sure my wife's gonna talk to me about that one later, um, my kids heard that, I'm glad my kids aren't here for that one, and like, oh man, this, I got a long way to go still. There's still some sanctifying, transforming, changing, deep in my heart work that Jesus needs to do. I mean, and so the question is, how? How do we become these people? How do people look at our lives and think, oh yeah, oh yeah, compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient? That's totally you. How do we do that? How does that happen? Friends Paul's gonna tell us. And again, he's gonna say: it starts on the inside, it starts when we allow Jesus to permeate our thinking and our feeling. Here is how we become those people. Jump down with me to verse 15. Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, he says, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, there's a lot in there, but primarily there are three key phrases that tell us how how to be clothed with all of these things. The first one is this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he says. The peace of Christ, let it rule. That word for rule is literally the Greek word for umpire. Umpire, and I have to tell you, friends, I have a daughter who plays softball. I have a son who plays baseball. I've been to a lot of rainy baseball and softball games, specifically this spring. I'm over it, eh? Come on, Lord, we need the weather to change around here a little bit. At any rate, I go to these games, I'll tell you this, in all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games I've been to, I have never, not one single time, seen an umpire change his call. The umpire will call a ball or a strike, and then fans have all sorts of responses. That was high, that was low. You're a bum, that's crazy, kill the man! I mean, like people just go crazy, right? They disagree with the call. Sometimes coaches will even call timeout, go up, talk to the umpire, discuss the decision with him and say, I don't think you were right, you were wrong. Everyone can see it. The crowd's aghast. I have never, even in all those situations, seen an umpire change his call, not even once. Why? Because the umpire is the one who has the authority to make the final decision, And so Paul here is making a very big and bold statement. He's saying, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart, in your life. In other words, as you make decisions in life about what to say, how to act, how to respond to a person or a situation, don't just do what feels best to you in the moment. Let the peace of Christ rule. Go with whatever will give you the peace of Jesus. In other words, when you think back on that email, that response, that conversation, what's gonna make you reflect on that and say, yeah, Jesus, you approved of what I said, of what I did, of how I responded. You call my life a strike, yeah. That's the first thing, here's the second. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. The word dwell means to be at home. To be comfortable. You, you, where do you dwell? You dwell in your home. You're comfortable in your home. You're to go back there after church, put your comfy clothes on and eat some food and feel nice and relaxed, aren't you? Yes, because your home is where you live. And so Paul is saying this. He's saying, followers of Jesus, allow God's words, allow God's message to feel, to feel very comfortable and at home in your home life. This is why we're doing Bible memory verses all throughout this series. It's one of the ways that we just say, let the Word of God just dwell and be at home and be very comfortable inside of our minds and hearts. But notice here, notice something really important. Paul gives us another way, maybe the primary way, that we can allow God's message to dwell Amongst us richly. Here's what he says. He says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through what? Psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitudes in your hearts. Do this with me for just a second. Just, just you know, go with me on this. Ready? We're going to do this together. Okay, you ready? I'm a little teapot, short. And stout. Here is my handle. Here is my spout. When I get all steamed up, hear me shout. Tip. I'm not going to do the tipping. That's too far. It's on video. Okay. Okay. Here's another one Itsy bitsy spider went up the water spout. Down came the rain and. Sing it out, Pastor Ashley. Out Out came the sun and and the itsy bitsy spider went up the spout again. Okay, here's the question Why do you still know the words to those songs? I mean, I know most of you, maybe a few of you do, this is kind of weird, but most of you don't have that on your Spotify playlist, it's not on your phone, you're not like playing that every morning when you wake up, oh, I love Itsy Bitsy, let's play that one today. Some of you haven't sung the Itsy Bitsy Spider in decades. If you don't have grandkids, like there's no reason, right? And yet, you still know the words just like that. I didn't put them on the screen. They're just right there for you. You're a little teapot instantly when I start singing. You had a handle and a spout, and you were steamed up, and you were ready to go, right? Why? Why do you know those words so well? Because they're in a song. Do you understand the power of singing? This is why the scriptures call us to be people who Sing. This is why this passage says, come together and sing psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing to God together. Why? Because this is what allows the message of God to dwell in you richly. Do you know, most of your theology is not from preaching Most of your theology is not even from reading scripture. Most of your practical, everyday, remembered theology is from the songs that we sing, and yet some of you are hesitant to really worship and to really sing. It's not just a warm-up for the sermon. It's a way of allowing the message of God, the truths of God, the rich truths that guide and shape our lives to dwell in us richly. So again, I implore you, church, sing, worship, and not just Sunday. Get a worship list and put it on your phone and play it in your car and in your house in the morning when you wake up and before you go to bed at night because there is power. And if you want the message of God to dwell in you richly, you've got to use the power that God has given us in music. Amen? Amen. All right. Enough on that. Finally, last phrase. Let the name of Christ drive. Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I've talked about this before, but this is so important for us to know, friends. When somebody's name is on something, they endorse it. When you sign something, you're saying, I agree with this, right? I agree with it. It's true. I buy into it. I say yes. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. When you pray and then you say in Jesus' name, some of you kind of have this idea that just because I said that, now God's sort of on the hook to do whatever I I asked. Right? That's like putting a, I can pray whatever I want and then slap a little in Jesus' name on there, Christian sticker. It's now a Christian prayer. It's not what that means. Let me tell you what that means. When you pray in Jesus' name, here's what you're essentially saying. You're saying, Jesus, whatever I prayed, that you would sign your name to, make it so. If I prayed some things, and it was my will, not your will. If I prayed some things, and it was the flesh, not the spirit, then then you just ignore that. But whatever you would sign your name to, Lord, let thy will be done. That's praying in Jesus' name. And Paul is simply saying here, as you live your life, As you make decisions, as you speak words, as you relate to other people, constantly ask yourself this question, would Jesus sign his name to this? Would he sign this name to this attitude that I have right now? Would Jesus endorse this statement that I'm about to make? Would Jesus sign off on this email that I typed in anger and I so wanna send? Would Jesus endorse this behavior that I'm exhibiting in my life in this moment? Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Friends, this happens in my life all the time. All the time. It's a really good sort of governor on your life. I think things in my mind. I consider words or actions. And then the Holy Spirit says, hmm, that's one idea, Dave. But I'm not sure Jesus would put his name on that. So before you speak, before you act, Let's think it through again together, right? Because I want my life to be a life lived where Jesus would sign off on it. Yeah, that represents me. That's my son. That's my spirit alive in him. See, friends, this all happens on the inside, All this stuff happens in our minds and in our hearts. That's where the battle is. That's where we must allow Jesus to come and rule and dwell and drive. Because when he does, when he gets in here and in here, when Jesus becomes more and more Lord, King, Ruler, that is when the out here will look more and more like people clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, um, our prayer together today before you, you're merciful, you're patient, you're kind, you're gentle. God, you... You exhibit all these things to us in such a radical and full and complete way. We just stop to acknowledge that and to thank you for it today. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, goodness in action. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to put to death those deep-seated things in our life that need to be uprooted, and God, that you would help us to be clothed in these qualities and characteristics that reflect you, your work in us and through us. So God, as we go today, help us to be people who partner with you in allowing you to rule, rule down in the deep parts, dwell in our hearts and minds and souls and drive. Be the driver, Lord, of all that we say and do because it is our desire, Lord. It is our chief and ultimate desire to represent you well, to bring glory to your name, and to reflect the gospel that has saved us so fully, so richly, and so mercifully. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, all these things we ask in your precious name. Amen.